Boom, what up? Hello, bonjour, and hola, real leaders. This is Kevin Edwards, your host here, and I am so excited. You're tuning in to one of our amazing experiences. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, real, and loaded with inspiration, guaranteed to support your impact journey. So sit back, enjoy the listen, folks share a review afterward, and always keep it real. Four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this, the fourth episode today, Simon, of the We Leaders podcast with the wise and wonderful Simon Maywaring. Simon, how are we doing today? I am great, great. Good to see you again. Great to see you too. Now, Simon, uh, We Leaders, we, this is now our fourth episode on this original series where we're really diving into sensitive topics, topics that may not get talked about at work, but people sure as hell want to talk about, and trying to give maybe business leaders a sense of how to navigate crises from a culture and perspective, from a leadership angle. How would you best summarize uh, what we're talking about here on the We Leaders Podcast? Well, I have to say on a personal note, I think leadership is really lonely, and I think it's tougher than ever. And I think also we often get quite hopeless, whether it's through the lens of our own business or our industry or business at large, as to whether we're going to be be able to solve for all of these issues. And at the same time, I've heard different leaders out there say, it's like the, the infrastructure that keeps things pointed in the right direction has been breaking down on so many different fronts. And I share that only because I see it differently. I see that we leaders, we are the human scaffolding for our future. So when we feel lonely, when we feel hopeless, we've got to lean into each other and not just to support each other, but to learn from each other and to kind of inspire each other. Because, you know, the optimism that I choose is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I am optimistic, I'll get a little bit of good done. And then you'll look at that and go, well, maybe so I can get a little bit done. And then hundreds of leaders will do this in their own unique ways, industries, regions, markets, and so on. And it'll take on a life of its own. So we leaders is all about recognizing what it means to lead when we've got these huge challenges. So looking to each other for support and inspiration and to look at each other's work as inspiration for the more we can do together. And if you're anyone like me, you know, you, sometimes you feel helpless. You feel like this is kind of all falling on your shoulders. What are you going to do about it? That's the mentality that a lot of leaders have. I have to fix things. And I think where we're trying to get to in this podcast is to say, well, let's let's step back a little bit. Let's see what others are doing and maybe collaborate together so that we can go with the group, that we can collectively solve this problem together. Um, so let's let's kind of just start this off with a, a quick little uh, topic that's going on right now. Um, and, and again, these are things that, again, a lot of people aren't comfortable with talking about in groups. They want to bring this in the work. They're going out, they're protesting on Sunday, and they're coming into work on Monday and being silenced because this is a political matter and this is work. We, we talk about work here not not this topic. So I think for us to kind of voice and express maybe the frustrations, the concerns that people are hearing may help these leaders understand how to navigate it within their culture, within their organization. So let's let's talk mm-hmm. about this first climate change policy, the climate policy that uh, went into effect and got passed the other day. You know, the climate policy is a huge win for the Biden administration for all of our futures because of, you know, 
EV vehicle subsidies and lots of different things. Yes, there's the critics saying it wasn't enough or it's not fast enough, but it's a massive step in the right direction. But to your point about you know, these issues being politicized internally, here's one thing, thing to consider. There is no limit to the role that business can play right now. I mean, when you have the president of a country at war, President Zelensky, talking to Mark Pritchard, or Mark Schneider, sorry, at um, the world's largest food company, Nestle, about, you know, how they can better support Ukraine's efforts by, you know, not doing business uh, in Russia, you suddenly realize that you've got heads of state talking to heads of companies in the context of war. I mean, in real time. So it's not just women's empowerment or same-sex marriage or guns con gun control, but it is these very real urgent crises that business must speak to now. With that as context, inside your office, when you go in on a Monday morning, you have to be very sensitive to the fact that people have different points of view and they have every right to have a different point of view. The challenge for your company at large, and then your employees will self-select whether they want to be a part of it or not, is the tone of voice they want to adopt and the issues they speak to. In my opinion, you've got to get sustainability, ESG, environmental, social, and governance right. You've got to get DNI right, and you've got to pay a fair and living wage. Above and beyond those table stakes, you speak to issues that are meaningful and relevant to your brand. And then in terms of your tone of voice, it could be anything from just being positive, like kind bars who want to spread kindness, all the way through to a Ben and Jerry's or Patagonia that are much more provocative on the climate front. And then that sets the tone inside your company for the dialogue that happens. And you have to respect everyone's individual opinion and also recognize there will be a spectrum of opinion inside the company. And it starts inside, doesn't it? You know, it's like we're providing maybe some recommendations, but at the end of the day, the change needs to come from inside out. So take of the, of, about all these you know, recommendations of what you will ultimately, this is a change the leader has to make inside to to, to make a change with that outside. Um, I, I want to kind of go at the, the headwinds first, if you're okay with that, Simon, kind of just talk about, okay, well, where, where are these ideas coming from? Let's talk about this ESG, I guess, phase that we're in right now. This is really the first time when, like you mentioned, Ukraine, like these, these public private partnerships really playing out and we're in, in, in people recognizing, look, we're in this ESG era. People and social pressures on the outside are having an influence on what is happening inside of these organizations and how they make decisions. So the recommendations that you receive are coming from these uh, experiences that we're witnessing happen in real time and how it can impact uh, and really make or break your organization. So start with the headwinds. Where is this coming from? Where is this ultimate idea out in the world coming from? Is it coming from the ground movement or is it coming from people, say, at the, the World Economic Forum uh, and forces such as those influential leaders? I mean, I think it's a great question. I think it's coming from all sides, which is why it's actually moving forward. You have heads of state speaking at the World Economic Forum Davos about, you know, needing to re-engineer capitalism. You know, you've got the CEOs of major corporations like Mark Benioff at Salesforce talking about capitalism as we know it is dead. So you're hearing it from these hugely influential leaders, but you're also hearing it from consumers and citizens on the ground who are having, you know, direct experience of extreme weather. But also, most importantly, because it's always about the money at the end of the day, anyone who says, don't follow the money, and that we're just going to wake up and grow a conscience is simply being naive. The market forces have to reward these shifts. 
And the investor class is at the table. And the reason they're at the table, whether you read it, you know, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, his annual letters, or any other commentators out there, is that to be responsible to their investors, the clients who put their money with these investment firms, but also the returns for their own firms, they can't in good conscience recommend investing in companies that aren't set up to succeed in a future that's going to be defined by the climate emergency, extreme weather, infrastructure challenges, and so on. So the reality is here. The rubber has hit the road. The direct experience in people's lives is so evenly spread now that you've got all stakeholders at the table, from leaders to suppliers to employees to investors and you know, nonprofits, NGOs, and foundations. And that's why it's really moving forward. And one of the things I want to make sure we we don't do is really create a polarizing environment uh, for for people who are listening. It's like, well, you know, don't tell me what to do. This is my business. Now, that's kind of the rhetoric that's out there right now. Um, people are trying to position, you know, this ESG as the take all your profits away philosophy that is, um, I guess, uh, encouraged and spawns out of Marxism. They're, they're saying uh, communism is coming back. And reality is, you know, you look at Larry Fink's investments and the investments are outperforming the market. When you do take into consideration ESG, when you do take into consideration the people, the planet and profits, these companies are sustaining long-term growth. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Why do you think it is um, the traditional entrepreneur, let's say here based in the United States, has a, uh, a disposition or kind of a, um, a negative slant to the, the term ESG. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of distrust when you see this huge flight of capital towards something new, in this case, ESG funds. And if you look at the sort of hockey stick of that capital shift, it looks like a lot of the sort of movements that have happened before, which are just trying exploited it. They're trying to take advantage of the situation. They're just renaming the same fund in new ways. But like any conversation, this shakes out over time and it's maturing. And those who are doing it genuinely versus disingenuously generously are getting sort of identified and, um, and celebrated. But here's the reality. The reason that this is so important, the reason that companies large and small are paying attention is brands can't survive in societies that fail. And in our own direct visceral experience over the last two years, we've seen a global pandemic. We've seen disruption of war in geopolitics. You have seen a global supply chain you know, um, disruption. You have seen so many issues that are all connected that impact businesses large and small around the world. And so, you know, whether you are suspicious of it or not, you see that there is a shift in the way business use the role of capitalism because the context has changed. We are facing so many challenges that are affecting business that we need to do business differently. We need to solve for these issues and prevent fires rather than waiting to constantly put out fires when they're already here. And that's a very positive and powerful move. And so why, why are we, let's just say, and I say we collectively as an impact movement, why, why are we trying to, I guess, consider ourselves different than a, a traditional business owner when in reality it's just good business. It's just responsible business at the end of the day. How do we, as an, if I'm an impact oriented leader of a company, how do I get away from trying to distinguish myself from a traditional company? You know, it's interesting. Traditional company might be misunderstood as just profit for profit's sake. It's all about the you know, bottom line and making yeah. money. 
and damn the consequences to people on the planet. What is exciting in terms of these more sort of impact focus companies is that the market forces are starting to drive their success so that by doing good allows more and more companies to do well. Mm. And in fact, you know, um, purpose and profit are intimately connected because sometimes you talk about your purpose and you can point to your products. Sometimes you point to your products and point back to your purpose. But we know this from all the data and the research out there over the last couple of years, employees, customers, consumers, um, investors want to buy from, work for, and invest in companies that, that are doing good. And it's not rocket science. Just look at the world we're in. Look at the headlines on your phone today. Everyone is concerned about their future. And so whether you're an investor, a customer, or an employee, you want to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, not just because that's the right thing to do, but because you're set up for success in terms of your investment or where you're working or you know the quality of the product that you're buying. And so you're starting to see these market forces rise and grow and increasingly reward those companies doing good. And you're going to see more and more companies slide off the back. The companies that don't think it's important, the companies that wait to be third or fourth or fifth or 10th in their industry, that kind of would rather do what they've always done in the past rather than sort of self-disrupt. As there's an exponential increase in the expectation of business to do more good, those companies waiting too long will slide off the back. They'll be on the wrong side of history. And so what does the world look like to you? How does private-public partnerships look? What does it look like to you, Simon, in, in five, ten years, if we were to make this shift? Because this is kind of the directions that we see is going. The headwinds are behind these impact-oriented companies, and they're catching the wave. What does it look like to you in, in five, five, ten years? Well, you know, we don't even need to project out five or ten years. Let's look at the most recent history. Give you a couple of examples. Look at the clean beauty industry. Every brand is now falling over themselves talking about, you know, the quality and caliber of the ingredients that go in their makeup and so on, and also their packaging, re-engineering their packaging because of plastics and so on. Look at the clean food industry. You walk into a Whole Foods or an Air One or, uh, you know, any one of these sort of Trader Joe's and you're like, it's like Vegas in terms of all of these claims about companies doing good. I mean, it's just shouting at you. Look at... Um, the fashion industry, you know, clean apparel, where everyone is talking about re-engineering their supply chain because 30 to 40% of apparel ends up in landfills. And it's one of the most egregious sort of culprits in this equation. Or look at the auto industry. Just consider this. When I wrote my first book, We First, that came out in 2011 and so on, um, everyone was just a pylon to Elon Musk, who was trying to stand up an alternative energy vehicle company. You know, the combustion engine was the archetypal American industry. It was as American as apple pie. And here we are just 10 plus years later, and every major auto maker has committed to transition out fully to alternative energy vehicles. So you want to project five or 10 years down the track? Just do that exponentially. Just look at every industry that is in feeling the weight of expectation from their employees and their customers and their investors. Every industry retool what they're doing a, because of that expectation and they want to be relevant, and B, because they're feeling the same effects of the climate emergency, loss of biodiversity, plastics in the ocean. They're feeling it themselves. So this is not only sort of an impact strategy, it's a survival and relevance strategy. And, and I think if the mission is strong enough, it, it will sustain itself. And what do I mean by that? If your mission is incredibly strong and you're able to get others to see that vision, to see that mission, um, you're unstoppable. I mean, if more people can understand the business principles that you have and the vision that you have, 
what is getting in your way? Investors are able to see it. They want to help continue and support that mission. So to go back to what you just said, if I am a business leader listening to this, what do I do tomorrow to get there eventually, to have that exponential return for my company and in my industry? All right, I'm going to give you three different solutions because the companies are at different stage in this journey. And this is all the work totally. we do through consulting at WeFirst. We help brands at all the different stages. First stage, you've got no purpose. You haven't defined it yet, which is why you exist. We help them define what that purpose is, then integrate it inside the company and bring it to life through their storytelling. And by way of example, it starts by answering key questions like, what is your enemy? Like, what do you exist to solve for? What are you the only of? When you're at your best, what are you doing? You start to externalize yourself by answering these questions, and then you interrogate that language, distill it down. And, you know, we worked with Mammut in Switzerland, which is an alpine adventure brand, and we gave them the solution, you know, to create a world moved by mountains. Something very simple, but as a big, powerful platform, an emotional platform to then to leverage. The second group of companies might be those that are doing a lot of different things and, you know, they have a purpose, but they're not really activating it in a way where you're connecting the dots. And we help brands become movements, which is just a really a lofty way of saying, how, how do you get suppliers, employees, customers and partners all pointed in that same direction of your purpose? And really, you're giving them co-creative opportunities to bring that to life. So we work with employees and partners and customers and so on to really help them think, well, listen, this is our purpose. What role can I play? How can we co-create content? What impact can we collaborate around? And then the third group of companies who are typically, you know, leaders in their industry or the purpose landscape more broadly, they want to shape society. They actually want to shape culture. And we help define for them what is that overarching conversation, cultural conversation they want to lead that will allow them to kind of even transcend their product services or category to shape culture, shape their industry, shape society at large. And as I mentioned before, just consider what everyone's doing already. You know, all these brands talking about same-sex marriage and the constitutional right to an abortion and gun control and CEOs talking about, you know, more aggressive climate targets. Nothing is off the table. So, you know, where do you start? It depends where you are in your journey, but you need to define your purpose and values if you're just at the beginning of that journey. You need to really uh, launch, build and sustain a brand movement if you're already underway with your purpose. And then you need to, at a higher order, if you are leading a brand movement, really shape society above and beyond your industry. And, and I want to generalize here for people, because obviously Mamoose can be a lot different than another B2B company or some supplier or something like that. But let's just stick with that example. I used to have a Mamoose backpack, actually, uh, you yeah. know, in, in high school, loved it. Now, there are a lot of outdoor backpacks out there. Let's talk about differentiation. Like, What, what was kind of that, if you're allowed to share... What yeah. was that kind of conversation like and how did you unlock that purpose throughout those products? Great question. And also, you know, we do this work with B2B companies, whether they're law firms, whether they're wealth management firms, whether they're private equity or venture firms as well, because we're all still human beings telling a story. We've got to communicate emotionally to people what makes us different. And as there's a pylon in this world of purpose and conscious capitalism, these B2B companies really need to differentiate themselves. So, you know, a big um, portion of our work is in that area. But the process was like this, you know, you have this esteemed, elevated, 160-year-old Swiss company who's really traded on their tagline, which is Swiss since 1862. And they realized that the glaciers were melting, that they needed to play a larger role in terms of the climate sustainability conversation, especially as they went into markets all around the world in Asia and beyond, you know, far outside Europe and, and Switzerland, where it had been based for so long. And 
What we did was we did a discovery process where they shared all the relevant materials. We did stakeholder interviews across the entire company in all their different markets around the world. And we also um, did a work session with their teams as to what their higher order aspiration would be for the company moving forward. On the strength of that, we define what their purpose was. And to give you an idea of why these sorts of solutions are powerful, to create a world moved by mountains gives them a creative role. It speaks to their product directly. It speaks to the co-creative role of their employees across all the different markets. So they're creating something. It's active. A world, and a world could be Hong Kong. It could be Switzerland. It could be Australia. Moved, emotionally moved, not, not intellectually, not rationally, moved by mountains. And mountains could mean many different mountains all around the world. So on the face of it, it needs to be incredibly simple to create a world moved by mountains. But as you look at that, you know, that, that sentence, you can go, wow, you can see that as a springboard for engagement for their stakeholders. You can see it as a platform for their products to create a world moved by mountains because you get out there and enjoy the mountains. And you can see it as a movement where you, know, you really want to get people who aren't in their fold already in different markets around the world engaged and out into those environments, which again, in turn, serves their, you know, the sales of their products and so on. And when you're moved by mountains, that then becomes a container for their impact initiatives, their sustainability initiatives, cleaning up trails, you know, all the different things that they do to actually look after the mountains they love so much. It's genius. And when I think of that, just from anecdotal evidence, is, uh, you know, I, I think of the glaciers melting. I think of all the outdoor enthusiasts who like climbing and have an appreciation for the outdoors. You know, I think that's a, a, a terrific example, especially for those business layers who are like, oh, now I get it. I get how this can increase my sales. I get how this could uh, attract more values aligned individuals to my company who want to work for an organization that is, I guess, a human, is a, right? is, is a you know, understanding of our impact on the environment. And you can talk about every single one of your products, no matter what it is, avalanche ropes to hiking gear. You can talk to any stakeholder. It might be a young family that just want to go for a walk in the hills and just look at a sunset and they're lost in awe to create a world moved by mountains through to the, the guy with the icicles in his beard with the ice peaks halfway up the frozen waterfall to create a world moved by mountains. And it can look very different in different markets around the world. China, Hong Kong, Asia, Switzerland. It has its own unique expression specific to those regions. And that's what I mean that these solutions need to have compressed complexity to them where on the face of it, it's simple, emotional and universal. But when you when you built into that language and really interrogate it, you can see you can unpack all the different aspects from stakeholders to products to the story you want to tell around the world. And Simon, what what is like a you do a survey, a matrix? How do you analyze what the company is currently doing for people listening out there? Like, hey, what would be the first step for me? Um, you know, obviously they want to hire we first, but you know, what would be the the first uh, step they can take to kind of get a good reading of where they they sit in the market? You know, I think all of us have been put on notice to do an honest self-audit. Like, look up your supply chain. Are you using suppliers that are responsible to the environment and actually self-disrupting to be more responsible to the environment? How is your company culture? Do you have diversity, but do you have true inclusion? You know, how are you, what are the products you're making? You know, are they closed loop? You know, do you have a circular economy going on? You know, are you adopting regenerative practices in the way you make things? And are you being, uh, being as responsible as you can going to market? And then are you walking your talk in terms of impact? 
Are you going out there and in alignment with who you are as a brand on top of, you know, ESG, sustainability, DNI, and also fair and living wage? Are you committing to making a difference on issues that are distinctly relevant and meaningful to your brand? And when you do that audit, I've never seen a company over the last 20 years of doing this that doesn't have some gaps, some imbalance. But here's the, here's the huge opportunity. When you've got a really foundational purpose and you let that inform your entire organization and really shape what products you make and how you take them to market, everything starts to work towards that one end. Everything, you connect all the dots, you unlock the synergies between them, you get the compounding effect. All stakeholders are speaking <clears throat> or singing from the same sort of hymn book in a way. And that's when your brand becomes a movement. That's when it takes on a life of its own. That's when someone walks into your office and goes, yeah, you know, I just feel it in the air. I mean, I've spoken down at Patagonia. I've been in a cliff bar. I worked on the Nike brand for a long time. It's in the air. And you create that when you actually have a clear purpose that's brought to life and that animates the company. And then, you know, when you do that consistently, you're like, wow, I know what this company stands for. I know why these people work here. I know why I buy their products. And if you're a leader of the organization and you're, you're on the path and, and you're, you're taking these steps, you mentioned like, you know, you can feel it in the air. Is Help me understand from your experience, like, when when you recognize that that shift had finally been made you know what i mean like yeah it's an intangible thing does, right it's, how does one understand that you know yeah we're here i have to say I'll, I'll give you a concrete example i worked on the adidas brand in london for three years before i moved to portland in oregon at, uh, to work at wyden kennedy on nike so i had a direct contrast between adidas or adidas and and nike and you'd sit there as a creative because i was a writer then back in the day before i had gray hair and i would sit there at my desk and you go, oh my God, this, this is a freaking awesome idea, like an ad concept. You might be working in the Olympics or the World Cup or God knows what it is, something. Um, but you're like, Nike wouldn't say that. Nike wouldn't say that. It's not the Nike brand. And you know, when you start to feel it in the air, it's almost a function of alignment between all the different experiences of the company. Hmm. So for example, the people you hire, the way you treat those people, what the office looks like, what you celebrate and elevate visually and intellectually inside the organization, the support you provide for those people, um, the messaging you put out there in the world. It's almost kind of like a combination lock where the integrity of the whole makes sure that all the parts are in alignment. So if you get all those parts working together, it all clicks into place and you're like, wow, this just feels like this company knows who it is. People know why they work here. And then people buy their product because it's so invested with the badge value of what that company stands for that when they buy their product, they're not saying they want to buy Nike or Patagonia or Mammut or anything. They're saying, I want to say something about myself. And this product is invested with that meaning. And so I'm going to buy this product to let people know what I care about. And that's when it gets really powerful. And also, uh, for most of these organizations, are they able to charge a higher price? You know, there's a couple of considerations there. For a long time, sustainability or purpose or impact credentials were a nice insurance policy to a product, but you'd always buy it for the price and the benefits of the product itself. That was largely true as well because the economies of scale weren't there. Like it cost a little bit more to get sort of recycled plastic or rather than, you know, alternatives and so on. But those economies of scale are coming such that you can 
compete on price and have a more sustainable um, and responsible product. At the same time, younger demos, millennials and Gen Z, Gen Z are coming through who consciously choose to buy responsible products because they see their, their, their future being forfeited every day. And at the same time, all of these different companies are getting that pressure I talked about from employees, investors, and consumers saying, our world's in trouble. What are you doing? So it is now, we're now at that point where all these different forces are aggregating and the economies of scale are there. And the, the, the purchasing power from the, you know, the majority of consumers is such that that I think it'll be a liability moving forward within the next five years, not to be incredibly articulate, transparent, and accountable for the sustain, you know, as to whether your product is sustainable, whether you're using regenerative agricultural practices, whether you're truly diverse and inclusive inside your company. And and how can I recognize as a leader when I'm getting in the way, when I'm getting in the way of the culture that is manifesting itself? Uh, how do I recognize that? Is it just not hearing from people, uh, people not feeling that they can talk about these things that are going on in the world? Like, how do I remove myself or or recognize that it could be me and the culture that I've created that's getting in the way? Yeah, well, that's a good question. That is a good question. I want to share one expression that I think is very true, which is pride comes before the fall. When you think you're SHI something doesn't stink. When you think that it's your way or the highway, when you think that everyone is there to be of service to you, rather than flipping that upside down and saying you as a CEO need to be sort of an exemplar that inspires other people to lead and you really unlock the agency of everyone inside your company, something will come unstuck. So how do you know or how do you find out? I think you need to create an environment where you give people permission to show up authentically. And when you do, for example, annual reviews, or when you speak to your board, or when you speak to your leadership team, or when you're doing your surveys, you create anonymous opportunities, you create safe environments to really get um, honest feedback. And for example, you know, I do reviews at WeFirst with our team members who are fantastic. And one of the questions I specifically ask them is to say, listen, I know I'm not getting it right all the time. I'm trying my best. And I know that there are things going on behind the scenes that you may not know about that make me show up in ways that I probably would change if I could. Can you share with me how you might like, might like to see that you know, happen differently? Are there any areas that are annoying you or do you think we could improve? Just, just be open and honest and be human. Like this idea of the CEO or the boss is so old news. You are collaborators in a purpose that's going to build a business that will be profitable because of the positive impact it's going to have in the world. Absolutely. And, and the question I, I kind of want to ask now is like going back to where we started the kind of the beginning of this episode in, in the politics and kind of bring that now that's now that's a really a forward thinking organization. It's, it's a company that I think people want. I guess what I'm hearing and seeing is like a lot of people that work for companies, they want to be talking about these issues and work. But at the end of the day, business has been so um, separated from this from right. bringing because it be why? Because it's polarizing. Of course it is. Right. So how, how do I, as, as a business leader, go, yeah, I, I like the idea of it, but at the end of the day, I am incredibly concerned about this polarizing and starting arguments and fights within my organiza organization. Yeah. Your, yeah. your thoughts and opinions on uh, sharing politics in the workplace. Yeah, politics is more polarized today than we know, as we all know, than ever. And it's compounded by social media and recent events, at least here in the United States, if not around the world. I don't know that politics 
ever has a place inside the workplace, but I do believe that issues that are otherwise politicized do have a place. Okay. And it's it's a gray it's a gray area. But what I would do is rather than let these sort of tensions foment and get out of hand and create a toxic environment, you can create safe spaces through tools like fishbowl and otherwise, where you can have a closed environment, a walled garden inside your company. You can bring up an issue. People can make comments anonymously or otherwise, and you can talk about these issues, where the company stands, what we're going to do about it, what we believe, and so on. Invariably, in some companies, there might be a person that just wants to pick a fight. That's just kind of where they are in their life. And there's always going to be a spectrum of opinions as well. But the clearer you are about your purpose, the clearer you are about what you stand for and the difference you want to make in the world, the more effectively people can self-select whether they're going to work at your company. And that doesn't mean people still won't have the difference of opinion, but the, the, the bandwidth, the spectrum will be narrower because that funnel will have really allowed the right sort of people who care about similar things to come to the table. But what I've heard, which is really interesting, some of these are companies that everyone knows that are very, very progressive and proactive and driving change out there in the world also suffer the issue that some people inside the organization will say, I love that we took that stand, but did we have to do it that way? Did you have to say it like that? Right. So you can't ever get it right. Mm. This is that downside of fleshware, this human being stuff. You know, if we got rid of that, you know, we wouldn't have any problems. No, absolutely. And, and that just, you know, that's something I'm passionate about is, you know, whether you have those conversations or not, a conversation is going to be had, whether you know it or not, within the organization. So how do you create a culture? How do you create an environment, like you mentioned, Fishbowl or, you know, a forum, uh, something, something where it's, it's very, um, I guess, intentional about the way you, you speak with people, the way you disclose items, the way yeah. you be vulnerable in your own uh, organization. And I think that it has value in itself by being vulnerable with others, sharing people and disclosing that in a confidential setting, knowing up front that, hey, everyone here is working toward a common goal of becoming closer as a unit. And there are things that maybe we want to share, but it could hurt if it's not in a, in a structured environment. I think that's something that um, could be helpful for a lot of organizations, almost forms within those organizations, if you have a culture that really embodies something like that. So anyway. Um, yeah, I, I think I couldn't agree more. You have to create a safe environment, which means if people are unhappy, they have resource to go and speak to someone in HR or chief people officer. You have to create an environment where people are used to hearing you talk about issues. So stand-ups or town hall meetings or quarterly meetings or annual kind of get-togethers, especially when people are remote, you talk about what the company stands for. You talk about relevant issues. You talk about how you showed up on certain things that happened and why you did it that way. And, and you also vent. You let people talk about you know areas that they weren't happy. You give them a voice. So it's kind of like constantly purging on the way through rather than waiting for things to sort of boil over. Well, Simon, this has uh, been an incredibly proactive conversation today. I think I've learned a lot um, and always do learn something new on one of these conversations, whether it's on a whim or, or, or plan. Um, you know, I think that these are conversations that pe that we need to get out into the world. We need to share collectively. You, you, me, and everyone who's listening to this conversation, we need to get the word out. We need to to go past the day to day and and look at uh, what's important for our future and our future generations. Any last words that you want to share with the, the audience today? Yeah, I want to share, to your point. I want to share something incredibly powerful because if you're pessimistic, hopeless, disheartened. 
I'm going to explode that. I'm going to get rid of it right now. Okay, jazz hands. We all have the same experience of life in as much as we have the same 24 hours in a day. But where you choose to put your attention, your focus is determinative as to your experience of life. If you just look at the negative headlines and you just hear, listen to people talking about what's going wrong, if you just sort of spiral emotionally, you know, in a negative way, of course, it's very hard to face the future with confidence. But if you manage how much news and social media you look at, if you focus on the positive stories, if you lean into the peers and colleagues that are having a positive impact, you can have a night and day experience at the same 24 hours. And with that in mind, I want to say this. If you think we can't meet these challenges with equal force, just consider this. We have never had all stakeholders at the table before to re-engineer capitalism, including the investor class, the money. We have never had business, large corporations, global enterprises, and an army of entrepreneurs out there innovating to solve for issues that are affecting them all. We have never applied consistently the full reach and resources of business to solve for issues that affect people and the planet. And we have never done it with a deep and profound commitment to be in alignment with the natural world rather than stealing from it. So if we sit there and gnash our teeth and wring our hands, I would say, what are you crying over? We haven't even begun to try. We are like barely 1% in what we could do when you consider that we've never done all of those things at once before. So don't, don't underestimate the innate goodness of human beings. Don't underestimate their ingenuity. And don't, don't underestimate what we can achieve in a crisis when we all work together and, and lead together in this spirit of we leaders. I am hugely optimistic about the future. This is not the end of something. It's the beginning of the most incredible business renaissance we'll ever see. And it's arguably the most important decade in human history. And I think we'll show up and we'll answer that calling. And, and folks, you know, we're, we're talking about something so simple. We're talking about something that is a, a mindset shift. It starts with me, right? And then it goes to we. It's inside out. Right, it's inside that starts with you in order to make a change today they are going to impact future generations tomorrow. Simon, where can people find more information about the book Lead With We? You can get Lead With We at Amazon. I'd love you to deep dive into the research, case studies, strategies, and tactics you can use for your business to grow your business by scaling your impact. If you want to connect with me about your brand, I'm Simon at wefirstbranding.com. Simon at wefirstbranding.com. And also do know that we're going to have a Lead With We course up there soon. So go to wefirstbranding.com, check it out and uh, register to be one of the first to know about it. So I just look forward to sharing thinking, but any effort, anything we achieve, it's only going to be done together. Folks, thanks for tuning in today uh, to the fourth episode of the We Leaders podcast with Simon Mayoring, uh, hosted by the Real Leaders podcast. I appreciate you. Uh, if you could leave us a review, let us know what you think, what you thought, how we can improve the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. All of those reviews do go a long way in terms of searches and helping others get help with their with their company, their culture, and how to change the world. Simon, appreciate your time today coming back on the Wheelers Podcast. And for everyone listening out there, always keep it real. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, John.
Hey, Relators, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to Relators.com today, you're going to get the first 30 days for free where you're going to be able to access all of our magazines courses and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.